This is episode number 62 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, it's Jesse here. Before we get into today's episode, I have news for you. If you are a postpartum exercise enthusiast, a trainer, a coach, or a women's health professional, this will be especially noteworthy. I am hosting the second annual postnatal fitness fast track series. This is a free, fully online, three-part video training course. I'm going to be sending you three brand new coaching videos that are five-minute max on the 9th, 11th, and 14th of April, straight to your email inbox. These videos cover strategies for reducing pelvic pain in lower body strength training movements, how to coach a pelvic floor friendly variation of breath holding for when your client or patient needs to lift heavy or awkward loads in life or exercise, and finally, considerations for coaching abdominal crunches to clients who may or may not have core or pelvic floor dysfunctions. If you are looking to better support your current or future postpartum patients or clients, this free video series will give you some key ideas on how to do so. After today's show, jump over to jessiemundell.com forward slash PFFT to join or go to the show notes where the postnatal fitness fast track volume two information will be linked. Enjoy the episode. Hey friends, welcome on to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And Anita Lambert. And today we have a special guest expert on who will be talking to us all about um, acupuncture in pregnancy, during birth, and postpartum. Um, so thank you so much, Anna, for being on today. My pleasure. <laughs> and so I'll share just a bit about um, Anna first, uh, and then we'll jump into questions. So Anna is a registered acupuncturist with the College of Traditional Chinese Medicine Practitioners and Acupuncturists of Ontario. She has a strong passion for women's health and more specifically obstetrics, which led her to expand her general practice. In 2015, she co-founded Toronto Acubirthing a practice catering to gynecological and obstetric health. She and her team offer acupuncture to support people through fertility, maintaining a healthy pregnancy, labor preparation, labor and delivery, and the postpartum phase. An avid learner, Anna spends most much time pursuing further education. Anna has trained at length with Claudia Sikovitz, a global leader in the world of acupuncture for labor and delivery. Anna has also acted as her teaching assistant in hospital-based clinical rotations. Anna previously taught gynecological and obstetrics at the SSC Acupuncture Institute, now known as the AIM Institute, and she has previously presented at the International Congress of Midwives and the Canadian Association of Midwives, discussing the efficacy 
of acupuncture and acupressure in pregnancy, labor, and beyond. She currently teaches at the Humber College in the traditional Chinese medicine practitioner program. So thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for taking the time to come chat with us. Both Jess and I have used acupuncture in the past, um, so we're really excited to talk a bit more and share more about what you do with uh, our listeners. So can you share a little bit, like what led you into acupuncture and specifically getting into um, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum? Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about all of this. Um, so yeah, uh, I got into acupuncture as a profession um, in my 30s. It was not, you know, a thing that I, I thought I would be doing early on in, in my life. Um, so I had been, uh, I was basically raised in my family business, which was a restaurant, which meant a lot of child labor. And I had started suffering from like back pain and musculoskeletal pain at a young age. And I had been seeking out all sorts of forms of therapy for a long time. And nothing gave me the kind of results that traditional Chinese medicine did. And so that was just a moment for me. It, it, was, it was a big shift in my own personal wellness. And then um, I happened at the same time to be working um, within the healthcare system a bit. I had, was working within hospital administration and um, not finding it all that satisfying um wanting to help people but not liking working within the bureaucratic realm of trying to help people so much um and an opportunity presented itself to take uh an introductory course and i took it and before the introductory course was over i was a student of chinese medicine and i never looked back um so it really was about experiencing the medicine that got me into this. And then almost, in, I always enjoyed uh, working with women's health issues um, and pregnancy in particular, there was something about it that drew me. I didn't quite know what it was, but I, I was always excited to have my hands on a pregnant person and pretty much... Um, about a month out of school, I was a month into my acupuncture practice, I started getting some pregnancy on the table and I started getting doulas on the table and doulas that started referring other doulas and their patient or their clients, pardon me. And so it was all of a sudden it was like, oh, this thing that I was kind of like drawn to was just finding me. And it was like, I have to get good at this and I have to get good at it quickly because <laughs> I'm really loving it and I want to see more of it. So yeah, that was the long and the short of it, I guess. <laughs> That's so cool. Amazing. Can you explain to us just basic level, what is acupuncture and how does it even work in the body? Right. So a lot of people will talk about getting acupuncture and a lot of people will get what is often referred to as Western medical acupuncture or dry needling, um, which is a lot more trigger point based. And what we do as acupuncturists, um, we work, especially in the province of Ontario, um, we work within the traditional Chinese medicine realm of acupuncture. There's Korean acupuncture and there's Japanese acupuncture. And I do, I have been trained in Japanese acupuncture as well, but um, uh, we need to focus in this province uh, within the Chinese medicine realm. 
And so what traditional Chinese medicine is, is that it is a whole systems medicine, which means we're not looking at any one body system isolated from the rest. We look at the whole picture, who you are as a whole, how does your digestive system work and how does your respiratory and your, your gynecological. And, you know, in Chinese medicine, we also never differentiate the mind from the body. In fact, we interchange the words heart and mind in our diagnoses. They're interchangeable terms for us. The, the psyche and the, and the body are one. And so what we're looking at is the whole. What brought you to this place today? Because, it, in you know, barring uh, an acute immediate trauma uh, from some sort of injury, um, most people have a bigger story about how they got to where they are. And so Chinese medicine takes all of that into account. And, you know, we often will throw around words like qi or yin or yang, and we'll talk about blood a lot. But really what we're talking about when we're talking about those things are about fluids and energies and how they're built in the body, how they're distributed, how they move, how they're dispersed. And um, we often will talk about those things in relation to specific organs, which, um, you know, a lot of people, when I'm talking about their liver being out of balance, we'll talk about liver cheese stagnation a lot. It's a very common diagnosis in Chinese medicine. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with your physiological liver. It's these energetics that we attribute to it in Chinese medicine, the, where the imbalance is. And um, usually there's it, organ systems that are functioning um, at peak, and then there's ones that are struggling a little bit. We'll call them excess and deficiencies. And we'll try to balance out those. We'll, we'll borrow from the strong organ systems to support the weaker organ systems often. And so, um, I happen to do that primarily with needles and lifestyle recommendations, often a lot of dietary therapy, um, you know, a lot of, uh, and the obvious uh, exercise and, med you know, like mindfulness and all of all of those other pieces that go into um, a well-rounded kind of lifestyle um and so but in addition to that in chinese medicine there is a huge portion of it is herbal medicine i am personally not an herbalist um but i refer to herbalists all the time um and i they do invaluable work so in the areas where the needles alone are not sufficient um needles diet lifestyle Additionally, sometimes we will be referring for herbs, which I understand for people who are trying to get pregnant or are pregnant or sometimes a little bit more hesitant and cautious about that. But those are discussions to be had with the herbalist about the specific herb uh, preparations that are being prescribed to you. Um, and then more from like a biomedical perspective, what we're doing with acupuncture is we're engaging your nervous system, or your autonomic nervous system, which is compartmentalized into your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system. And I think we all know that sympathetic as our fight or flight response, our stress response, and but we don't necessarily clue into our parasympathetic as much, which is your rest and repair. And so what we're really trying to do is engage that part of your nervous system so that your body goes, oh, wait a second. I know how to do this. I know how to reset. I know how to take care of myself. Um, and so from a biomedical perspective, that's primarily what we're doing with acupuncture.
I love hearing that perspective and hearing from acupuncturists because there are so many professionals who do use acupuncture. Like I'm a physiotherapist and do use it as a modality. However, we are within our scope of practice. We don't treat everything that you treat as an acupuncturist. So I love hearing kind of that, that side. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate it too, because there, there's a lot of people I think are interested in acupuncture, but they don't really know how it works or how it could be helpful. So for example, with pregnancy, what um, when you have clients coming in who are pregnant, uh, what would be some reasons that they're coming to see you? So it would vary uh, depending on what stage of pregnancy we're talking about. Often we're working with people before they're even pregnant. So we're doing a lot of fertility work as well. Um, and so what that can look like is also trying to help people get pregnant, regulating menstrual periods, um, and, and and all of the things that go with that. We won't get into all, I know we're not so much talking fertility today, so, but that is a portion of it. Um, but then in first trimester, it would be things like unstable pregnancies, um, threatened miscarriage, those, uh, you know, the scary things, the things that nobody really wants to talk about. And often people are just so terrified to do anything. And they've got some spotting, they've had some cramping, they don't know, they've been diagnosed with a subchorionic hematoma, something that is terrifying to them. And so we can actually at that stage, um, help to calm the uterus itself um, and calm the mind and help relax the person and help build enough chi and uh, enough yang chi in particular at that stage in the game um, to support the pregnancy. Uh, so that is a very common thing in first trimester. Um, additionally, the, the very the most uh, common symptoms in first trimester are what? Fatigue. <laughs> we can definitely do stuff to help with that. And then the nausea, the vomiting, morning sickness, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, we can definitely be helpful. I think most people are have some awareness of that. And I don't know that maybe everybody realizes that like the nausea, the seasickness bands that people often wear um, on their wrists, those are pressure points on the probably most famous anti-emetic point in acupuncture. Um, so that like first trimester, that's, I would say like that is the bulk of what we see is, um, you know, unstable pregnancy and uh, nausea, vomiting, fatigue. Um, and then of course, should the worst happen and it, not be a successful or a viable pregnancy, we can also help people through that process. Um, you know, helping to let go, helping the body to physically let go, all of the mental, emotional components that go into it, as, as along with the physical. We, we are more than honored to help people through that process. Um, but on a more positive note, um, through second trimester, we tend to see our patients the least. That's generally when most people are feeling their best. Um, so we might go from seeing people like twice a week or weekly down to seeing them once every three weeks or so, um, depending on what their situation is. Uh, I think the most common things that we expect are uh, back pain, <laughs> uh, indigestion, constipation, and... Uh, Sometimes the hemorrhoids start as early as the second trimester, things like that. Um, 
and you know the obvious musculoskeletal pain, stress, insomnia, um, that kind of thing. And then as we progress through third trimester, obviously all of those things are a little bit more amplified. Um, and uh, we will tend to see a lot more of the musculoskeletal, a lot of the digestive, the heartburn, the indigestion, um, all of that. But we also start to uh, start to see people more often, not just because they're physically feeling less comfortable, but because we start thinking about preparing the body for labor specifically. Um, and this is the piece that I really like to emphasize. If people get no acupuncture throughout their pregnancy and they only start coming to us in their third trimester, I think they're doing themselves a huge favor because they're setting themselves up for, um, uh, I, I think they just think they're doing a better job of setting themselves up for something. You know, you don't, uh, you don't take an exam without ever studying, <laughs> right? Um, so the preparation work is, is key. And so that will look like, um, helping to balance the pelvis. A lot of people sit at desks all day long and have terrible posture or they're dealing with like a lot of uh, strain. I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, new strain on the pelvis in pregnancy, but um, people are not necessarily moving as well as they could. Have. They, they were in the past. They're not as physically active often, um, or maybe they're doing the wrong I don't want to say wrong. That's not a, like that's not an ideal word to use. But I'd say like maybe they're not doing the optimal exercise for them at this stage in the game. And so we are looking to make as much space in the pelvis to help optimize uh, baby's position and move things uh, along so that once labor begins, the hurdles of a malpositioned baby are uh, are are diminished. Um, I obviously, Anita, you do a lot of uh, pelvic PT work. So this is right in the realm of what you would be doing. Um, but we can often do um, some great work in terms of fetal positioning. Um, and then as we get closer, once we start reaching around the 36, 37 week mark, we actively start thinking about labor prep. So cervical ripening, helping to soften the cervix, help the cervix move more anterior because it likes to hang out posterior by your tailbone for your whole pregnancy and, and all of, uh, helping with all of that. Um, and then I just, I can't emphasize enough that you can't discount, discount the mental emotional piece that acupuncture can be really helpful for. Um, you know, it's, it can be a, a musculoskeletal issue. It can be a, a, you know, a ligament, a tendony kind of issue, but it can also be very much a spiritual uh, issue for, for the person going through all of this, whether they've been through it before or not. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of I, I I think felt like that was maybe a, a longer answer than you guys were hoping for, but uh, I wanted to kind of talk through the stages of uh, of pregnancy and how we the things that we treat. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing to hear. Thank you for that. I have used acupuncture at various stages of that journey too, as you were talking about uh, before my first pregnancy, getting a wonky menstrual cycle back on track and acupuncture was very helpful with that. And then during my first pregnancy at the 
end about what you were just mentioning, that preparation for labor. And then in my second pregnancy with terrible nausea in the first trimester, mm-hmm. all the things you were mentioning and the heartburn and all that stuff. So yeah, it's just super just really interesting stuff and i think as you're talking about all these different symptoms that might pop up for people we don't even think that acupuncture could be a tool that would be helpful for us and i i'm a fan of the the woo as some people would call it and really thinking about this more in spiritual ways or but i'm i'm wondering for the science minded people who are listening in is there yes. specific evidence based information on acupuncture during pregnancy for prep for labor all that stuff right so um it's not a terribly new study but this is the one that pops to mind right off the top of my head is the one that claudia sikovitz who i've trained with um had done in uh in uh, their the hospital in brooklyn and um what they were finding in this study was that, um, and they were treating people in labor, admitted to the hospital, and uh, had never had any previous acupuncture previous, uh, but before that, and um, what they were finding with the acupuncture in labor was not that people were getting necessarily, uh, what they had initially expected to find was that they would have lower epidural rates. Um, but that wasn't the case because this was a hospital where um, uh, pregnant folk were discouraged, uh, strongly discouraged from ever getting out of bed. So when you don't have the ability to be mobile, whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter because at some point the epidural is probably going to be a necessity. Um, but what they did find was far fewer interventions. <laughs> Um, so meaning far fewer episiotomies, C-sections, vacuum deliveries, all, and all, all of those things. So I think, um, and I know you were talking a little bit more specifically about, uh, labor prep and, uh, Deborah Betts, who, uh, is, she is the leader on uh, acupuncture in obstetrics in the world. She's a New Zealand based acupuncturist, former RN and, um, her, her research in it and her work in it is definitely showing that um, labor prep work can be uh, in particular use, useful in terms of um, issues around uh, due dates. And I, I, I think I was here, I was listening to one of your podcasts and I think you guys were talking about like just telling people you're, you've got a 43 week due date. <laughs> Um, but that kind of issue, all of the stress and all of the other things that go along with that, actually um, getting people uh, more prepared. And the reality is, from a Chinese medicine perspective, um, you know, this these issues around due dates, we often see as issues that go back to people's menstrual cycles. Um, you know, if you had a really short menstrual cycle to begin with, you might be more, your natural cycle might be, uh, shorter than a 40 week due date. And if you had one of these really prolonged menstrual cycles, um, potentially we would be just expecting you if you had if you were always yin deficient we wouldn't expect that potentially you would be ready to deliver earlier and if you were very young deficient and your cycles were longer we would maybe expect that you know the the i'm gonna get a little 
too TCME maybe here, but um, what happens when when we build enough yin energy and we build enough yin material, it becomes yang in energy. So if you can picture that yin yang symbol and how it's this continuous loop, it's because the one is always feeding into the other. And in order for labor to for labor onset to happen, we need a buildup of yang. And so if you were yang deficient to begin with, it might take longer for that to build up and for labor to begin. So we don't just look at, um, you know, the MSK of it, we're looking at what your constitution is like. And so in those Chinese medicine uh, terminal, uh, uh, in, in those TCM diagnosis, uh, which would be like, when we go back to qi, yin, yang, and blood. So those are would be the things that we would also be focusing on. So whatever dietary or lifestyle recommendations we'd be making in that labor prep would be catered specifically to you. There is no one size fits all with traditional Chinese medicine. So it would be really specific to what is happening in your pregnancy so that we can optimize what is happening, uh, you know, the, optimize the situation walking into labor. I don't know. Did I, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I was wondering, can you explain um, just a little bit about yin and yang? Just because I know I know some of our listeners may not be familiar with that in regards to acupuncture, because I know that is talked about quite a bit. For sure. Um, so if we... I, we don't necessarily want to think about things on a binary because there's there's this fluidity of things. But if we had to break it down to binaries, we might call yin cold and we might call yang hot. We might call yin fluid and we might call uh, water and we might call a yang fire. Uh, if yin is substance, uh, yang is the, the lighter, airy, more immaterial kind of component of things, um, you know, uh, so those are kind of the spectrum. So we talk about yin in terms of energies. We also talk about yin and yang, sorry, in terms of energies. But we also talk about them in terms of uh, heating and cooling and what that might mean for your diet and for, you know, like maybe eating more yin nourishing foods um, would be more beneficial for some people. We also talk about blood as a subset of yin. Um, so we don't necessarily, we don't talk about blood in terms of, you know, blood that's coursing through our veins. It's a, it's a, a more of a concept. And it, if, uh, yin is in general about fluids, a lack of blood would be more about a dryness. Um, so we often will use this metaphor. We, I, I always, I always do it with a visual aid when I describe yin and yang, but if you can picture, uh, the two things as level, and then, um, if you have, you know, if the pot of yin is full and the pot of yang is full, but somehow now we've drained the pot of yin a little bit, there is automatically going to be a relative excess of yang. Right. So there's so if yin is the cooling and yang is the heating, there's going to be this relative excess, which means the fluid is going to be a is more likely to cook a, a little bit more because, it's, oh, we're not balanced anymore. There's more heat. And so slowly and slowly, more and more slowly, that yin will keep boiling off, steaming off. Right. So we'll keep losing that. So the idea would be that we want to nourish that yin either through Chinese medical herbs um, 
or we might do it through diet or we might do it through some lifestyle stuff. So like lifestyle might look like if that yin deficient person um, who is exhibiting some of these heat symptoms because of a lack of yin might be the kind of person who has a lot of like difficulty falling asleep at night, racing thoughts. And then because they have energy at night that they need to like work off, they go and do like a really high energy cardio exercise before bedtime, but somehow they still aren't sleeping well. If yin is nighttime and yang is daytime, we're still burning off more yin because that person is awake and, and active, mentally active when they should be mentally quiet when they should be physically quiet when their temperature should be dropping overnight as opposed to oh be, having all of this activity so it can we can apply this yin yang theory to almost anything um and we do we apply it to a lot of things in chinese medicine and um it is it does become like the crux of how we diagnose yeah that's a great explanation that was helpful thank you okay. <laughs> Let's go back to what you're saying about using acupuncture to help induce labor. And I say that in quotations. Can you talk more about that? Does that work? How does that even work if it does? Okay, so I'm going to be, uh, I, I, people might hate me for what I'm about to say, but I absolutely do not endorse acupuncture for endorsing labor. Um, the evidence doesn't show that it is like, if somebody's body is not ready to do labor and trying to make contractions happen with acupuncture is your quote unquote natural induction. I don't see that having a more positive outcome. Like I always talk to people about why they want an induction. We, it is, we are notorious for getting these phone calls at 41 and 10 or 41 and eight being like, I'm going to be induced. Oh no, I don't want to be induced. And it's like, okay, in that scenario, I can have a conversation with you. If there's a way to avoid a medical induction and we can take a little bit of time and help prepare your body a bit more, then I'm more than happy to do that. If a medical induction is imminent, and for me, I will not, uh, I will not attempt this unless a medical induction is like imminent. And I mean, like 24 hour range imminent. Um, because at that point, there really is nothing left to lose. Um, but getting an induction going because people are at that, like, I hit 40 weeks, and I'm fed up, and I'm done. And my mother-in-law is coming into town and I want this baby out before she's here or any of that kind of stuff. You know, what we might refer to as a social induction. Um, I'm not on board. I don't see uh, more favorable outcomes, quite frankly. When you actually, you might see contractions happen on the table, but guess what? That doesn't, mean, and if you're not following up with that person to see how the actual labor progresses, that might just kickstart prodromal labor. That doesn't make anybody happy. If they were hoping for a home birth or if they were hoping for a non-medicated birth or whatever it is, you're not preventing any of that. You're actually amplifying the chances of that, is my opinion. Um, what I do see as really useful is starting the work 
early in the third trimester and definitely by around 36 weeks. We obviously are not going to do any cervical ripening before 37 weeks because we know that 36 and 6 is a preemie. Um, but once we've hit that 37 week mark, we are going to talk about doing all of the things to help you know, move the cervix, thin the cervix, descend the baby. The very, very last thing, calm the spirit. The very last thing that I'm interested in doing is starting contractions. And I will only do that once I am confident that that baby is low enough and that we've had enough changes in the cervix, or at least some changes in the cervix. Because some people are 42 weeks and they're still like long, hard and posterior. There's no point in trying to make contractions happen at that point because you're not setting them up for success. I could not yeah. love that answer more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it so interesting because um, I get a lot of clients asking about that too. And I, you know, I say as a physio, that definitely is not within our scope of practice. But even I remember speaking with you too at um, like the past conference and previously is that even as acupuncturists, could you actually say you're inducing labor or it's more within your scope? You'd be saying we are preparing the cervix. We are, you know, everything that you've talked about. And it's more if the body is on the verge of going into labor, it may go into labor, but it's not necessarily that you're causing the body to go into labor if it's not ready. Is that correct? Well, our scope of our scope of practice is actually quite broad. So um, there is nothing in our um, there is nothing in the textbooks that says, you know, if we're because we always have to categorize things by disease. We don't actually categorize things by health, but we categorize things by disease. Where uh, induction of labor is like the thing that you're treating. I often will talk about labor preparation in my charting notes and my cervical ripening, but I never ever um, go for induction. This being said, this is a thing that I do want to highlight is that not all acupuncturists are, tra are trained in obstetrics. They might be trained in fertility or gynecology generally, but not in the obstetrics piece. And so what you do um, what you do here in acupuncture school a lot is these are the forbidden points because they induce labor. Deborah Brett has reframed those points in, uh, in the way she teaches them as they are labor preparation points, which is why they were classically forbidden points. Um, and what most people still think of them as labor induction points. And I think a lot of people know them, the large intestine four on the hand and gallbladder 21 on the shoulders and spleen six on the ankle. Um, but what people tend to do is like, oh, well now you're at term, so we can just jump on them without actually having, um, because all of the training was like, don't do it, don't do it, because they're so forbidden that they will immediately uh, start labor, that they think, okay, if I put those points in and I hook them up to electrostimulation, which is kind of like a TENS machine on the needles, oh, like labor is going to get kickstarted. And it often does, don't get me wrong, but often you end up with this prodromal labor kind of situation. Um, and nobody's a happy camper when that 
when that happens. Um, so my point of all of this is do your research, find an acupuncturist who actually has obstetrics training. And there's nothing wrong with questioning, uh, you know, when you're calling to make that appointment or you're researching them online, like what is their training? Um, because a lot of people will be like, I, I know plenty of people um, that, you know, won't touch somebody through pregnancy because they're so terrified of, you know, doing harm because, you know, you know, God forbid, knock wood, like, you know, somebody has a loss and then they don't want to be held responsible. And you see this in all sorts of professions. You see this with RMTs and you see it with, you definitely see it in the acupuncture world. But then the second somebody's at term, they're like more than happy to treat. And I'm like, if you're not comfortable treating pregnancy, you should not be comfortable treating induction or labor prep. Um, and I'm, I, I stand firmly by that statement. <laughs> yeah, that is so fascinating. I've never thought about it that way, but it makes so much sense. Can you talk about turning breech babies and using moxibustion for that? Right. So moxibustion is a thing that um, it's an herb. It's mugwort um, that we uh, that is quite famous for turning breech babies. And this is a way that we would say, if we're talking about the different kinds of chi, yang chi, this warming, heating chi, is uh, we can add it straight to the body, right? It's literally an herb that you set on fire that you can put directly on the point. Um, if you're doing moxa directly on the skin, you would have a little bit of a, a, a cream as a barrier, um, but most people will do it. Uh, there's these smokeless cigars that you can buy, basically. They, they look like a charcoal cigar, um, and they're, they're smokeless. Um, they're, uh, it's not my preferred way of doing it, but it's my, it, it is the tool that I give people to take home because um, really the protocol is about daily treatment. And it's not something, the moxa piece of it is something that people can do for themselves or they can have their partners do. Um, and I think it's particularly useful when there is a partner in the picture to have the partner doing it because they're engaging in this whole process as well. Um, but it is a point on the baby toe, right at the edge, the, the outside corner of the nail that we, uh, bladder 67, urinary bladder 67, that we would uh, apply this moxa to. However, doing moxa alone, I don't think does the trick. Clinically, I haven't seen that to be the case. I mean, there is the odd situation where it, it does immediately, but I'm sure um, Anita would probably agree with this when talking about all the pelvic floor work. And what I was talking about earlier uh, with the third trimester work is the making the space in the pelvis. <laughs> getting the ligaments to relax, uh, opening the pelvis. There's often a lot of imbalance happening. So are, is one hip anterior tilted and the other one's posteriorly tilted? Is there, like, are they bearing their weight drastically through one hip versus the other? Trying to balance out what's going on in the hip flexors. Are they people that are still doing a ton of Ashtanga yoga and they're like, their center is still way up at their xiphoid process and they're holding like way too much tension when they should be letting go and letting things soften at some point things need to get soft and low right and there's this this going back to that type of 
you know, high intensity exercise, at some point that has to get cut out because we don't need you to have, you know, rock hard abs through your whole pregnancy. <laughs> we need that all to soften. And so primarily what I see breach treatment doing is as the acupuncturist, I want to get in there with my hands. Um, I do a lot of Twena, which is Chinese medical massage. So it's not just needles. Um, and we do often we'll do a lot of cupping, um, which I think a lot of people have become more and more uh, aware of, which is a form of myofascial release. And get the space opened up, help the hip flexors relax, relax the quadratus laborum, open, like let the piriformis let go, get into sacro uh, tuberous ligament, getting all of that stuff to relax enough to make the space for the baby to turn. And then I give uh, the pregnant person the moxa to take home and hopefully their partner's doing it for them, 20 minutes a day for 10 days straight. Optimally, you're doing this uh, in the 34th week. Um, for first time pregnancy, um, the earlier we can address it, the better. If it's, you know, second, third pregnancy, the uterus has more give. And so we can be doing this, you know, if, you know, it hasn't been diagnosed up until 38 weeks, even there, we still have time in that scenario. But in a first time pregnancy, you know, um, the uterus is, you know, it's it's not going to have the same uh, give that it does in uh, subsequent pregnancies. So the moxa piece would happen um, at home, 20 minutes a day for 10 days straight, even if baby turns uh, midway through the process. It's about, it's not a flip the baby point, it's an optimize the fetal position. So it's often a point that we even will go to in labor with OP babies because it's about optimizing uh, the baby's position. So yeah, so basically, to sum up, we would use this, uh, this tool, the moxa, the mugwort, um, to add yang chi to the most distal point on the longest, the biggest channel in the body, which has a, which is the most yang. Um, the bladder channel starts at the inside of the eye, it wraps around the head, goes all the way down the back, comes back up and back down the whole back, goes down the legs and ends on the pinky toe. Um, so it's a massive channel, it's the strongest point on the biggest channel, which is a yang channel, and then it has this direct line it's like a direct hotline to the uterus. And even in labor, we will tap on that point sometimes when we're seeing like, um, we're not sure if babies, like you're seeing like uh, a lack of variability in the fetal heart rate. And so sometimes we'll just even tap on it. It's like a wake up, wake up, are you there? Like an irregular. And so it is like, you, we see it clinically on the fetal monitor, like boom. You, if, if baby's okay and is just sleepy, you know, you'll start to see the variability in the heart rate. So it's like this point that has this straight direct line to the uterus. We're adding this yang chi so that the baby can, we can encourage the baby to turn once we've made the space. So cool. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I love when you're talking about kind of all the different um, things, you know, uh, induction or lack of induction in terms of with acupuncture, all of it, it, it I think some people think acupuncture is a quick fix for anything, whether it's in labor or prep. And so I love how you're explaining like, no, it's more of a process that it's don't don't wait until you want to change something that the preparation is just as important. 
it's really funny because my my stepsister when she was pregnant with her second uh you know she told me you know and the first time uh, she had an induction that she was you know it ended in with a vaginal birth but she was very unhappy with the process um and so when she told me she was pregnant with her second, I was like, okay, like I'm more than willing to help, but just don't call me in the 11th hour and tell me like you're getting an induction and you want me to help. And what did she do? She called me like literally 15 hours before she was getting induced. And I was like, and we were talking about it the other day and she was like, yeah, I know I was one of those people like, you know, <laughs> but, but you know, for some people, some people just aren't ready until they're ready. And I get it. Um, and I think that's why, like, it's not that I don't have empathy for people for that are calling me at in the 11th hour and I'm not, not willing to help them, but I just want to mediate their expectations of what we can do. Um, and like I said, it, what Claudia does is in the hospital-based setting is like, she's working with a population that's never had acupuncture before. And they're in this setting where, um, I mean, things have changed in that hospital over the last few years, but um, it was up until a few years ago, it was very like, there was not a lot of progress in terms of what you could and could not do in terms of like, there was only one time ever that um, she could know where a patient was actually encouraged to get out of bed and walk around. Um, so, you know, even in those settings, if we're seeing a, a, uh, a decrease in medical interventions, I think it's still a success, but you know, what is, you know, the average person looking for acupuncture looking for is probably something different than what's happening in that scenario. Yeah, I think that's a really great point of managing the expectations of the person. And also, I find that so interesting that they're using acupuncture in hospital, and especially a hospital which seems to have very tight protocols on what they are allowing these pregnant people to do during their labors. Yeah, in the U.S. in general, there is a bit more movement um, towards uh, normalizing the use of acupuncture. And you're seeing it in particular in emergency rooms where acupuncture is being incorporated into emergency room medicine. And I think a good portion of this has to do with a lot of the work that acupuncturists have been doing within the VA, within Veterans Affairs and working with vets with PTSD issues and stress and that that component um and so i and obviously pain issues um so i think in conjunction with like the opioid crisis that's going on that people are seeing that this is of benefit to get into er's which is helping get it into other aspects of the hospital um yeah so can you um share anna what actually happens when you go to a birth like when when would typically you arrive and how do things kind of play out in terms of your role? Right. So ideally, I'm not at the birth. Ideally, we've done the work uh, with the labor prep work um, that they don't need me. They've got a doula. They've got whoever they have supporting them. And I'm unnecessary. Um, but when I do show up for labors, it's usually um, to kind of problem solve and then get out. I don't replace a doula. I am all about referring to doulas and making sure that my patients have doulas on hand. And most of the doulas that I know um, already have some kind of understanding of how to use acupressure in, in labor. And so um, 
and a lot of them I've taught the acupressure to. Um, but that being said, I also am teaching um, my patients acupressure or getting their partners to come into session so that I can teach the partners how to do acupressure even better. Um, you know, that that is always my preference is to get the partner doing the hands-on work because a big piece of it, aside from calming the nervous system and using these points that we know will like help to soften the cervix and nourish it and help move contractions along and all of that is like the oxytocin release that comes from touch. And who better to support that than the partner, the person that you made this baby with, right? Um, so, or the person that you've chosen as your support person in labor, um, they're the person you love. So getting touch from them is definitely gonna get way more result than it is uh, getting touch from me. Um, but uh, what lab having uh, me at a labor usually looks like is, you know, I've been checking in with that, uh, my patient. They've, they've paged me, they've told me that they're in labor. And it's like, okay, how are things, you know, much the same way they might be paging their, their doula or their midwife. We're checking in every so often to see how they are. I'm listening to how their contractions are on the phone. You know, if they sound like they're tolerating things well or not. If we're suspecting that um, baby is OP early on, um, then I'll get to them a little bit more quickly because we want to like resolve that to make things move more smoothly. Um, it's not necessarily what people would think that I'm there for. Most people would think pain management, right? You're, you're calling the acupuncturist in for pain management. And it's like, okay, yeah. But my experience is that most people can tolerate the pain if thing in, in their own way, if everything is um, going as it should, meaning baby's position, <laughs> that they have enough chi, they've got enough energy on board to do labor. And uh, we go from there. I look at myself as someone that comes in to help expedite an efficient labor. <laughs> So what we know about an OP labor is that, or an occipital posterior, sunny side up baby, a malpositioned baby, is that um, it, it uh, the baby's occiput, the back of their head, isn't giving an sufficient pressure on the cervix, which makes the contractions less effectual. So it's about like, okay, what is ineffectual right now? What is not working smoothly? Let's come in, let's problem solve and then let's go. If we, you know, we problem solve the issue, things are going fine, and then things stall again, then I'm more than happy to come back. But my guideline, my expectation for patients is that I, I would like to be there a max of two hours, but I, I tell them to anticipate anywhere between two and five for a total, depending on what's going on. I am not typically there for the duration of labor. Um, often it's my our contribution to labor is something like prodromal labor, you know, like actually establishing, helping labor. It's, it's started, but it's not really established. So helping somebody establish labor. Somebody's had uh, their membranes rupture and they don't have contractions happening. Helping actually get the contractions going in that scenario 
more than happy to do, right? Because we know that they get put on this timeline of, oh, now, you know, uh, your membranes have ruptured. And if you haven't, uh, you know, if labor's not really in the throat swing of things, then, you know, they're going to go on a Pitocin drip or, you know, other interventions might occur. So those are the kinds of scenarios. I seeing we're also really, um, we're also quite good, I have to say, uh, at, um, smoothing out contractions you know when you see uh, on a monitor these like spiky irregular contractions are the ones that get really intense really quickly and then drop off really suddenly we're really we can be really effectual at helping to smooth that out like build a nice contraction help sustain it and then let it drop off uh gradually so doing all of those things um in the realm of is it a chi deficient birth is it a yang deficient is it a chi stagnation is it a blood is there blood stasis is, are things not moving the way are things just is the person so um bound up and tight tense that they can't let it happen helping to physically relax them so that can happen but also to help build the energies that are lacking or not moving appropriately to expedite labor. Um, but that often looks like things like uh, ineffectual contractions, uh, malposition, um, uh, mental, emotional kind of calming them down um, and just helping to smooth out contractions or build up contractions. Are you attending births at home and hospital? And yeah. perhaps birth center too? Yeah, all of the above. We we attend births at all of them. Um, I will be honest, we have backed off a little bit on how much we're attending labors these days, just because it's um, it's a little bit hard to maintain a general practice and be on call. Um, so we do it on a contract basis at this point in time. We at one point we were doing it. We were just always on call for anybody, anytime, whoever wanted to. to but it, it's just uh, it's a little too much for us to actually maintain. So we do it uh, on a contract basis. Yeah. And how do you find in those three different environments, how is it working with the birth team? Like, do you notice a difference if you're with the birth team at home or the birth center or the hospital or how does, how does that all work? I find that we're generally really well, like accepted. I've never had an issue. I've definitely had, uh, you know, OBs that kind of like hang back. They'll give the okay for us to do the work that we want to do, but they'll kind of hang back and you, you can see that they're a little skeptical, but then when they see uh, the results of a more efficient labor or problem solving the, the thing that, has been the hang up in labor and then you know delivery is not all that long after they're always interested in chatting afterwards um so you even though the, you would think that they would kind of not be so into us being there they often are like huge supporters um and the nurses love having us there because we're helping with their workload and the doulas love having us there because we're clearly helping with their do workload. They're doing a lot less of the massaging and the, and the physical doula-ing um, when we're there. Um, and I think the partners feel really happy to have us there as well because um, we always engage the partner. I've seen partners that have been so disinterested in the process or so freaked out by the process that they seem like they're they're hiding under a cover in the corner, but once you give them a task and they you like you give them these points to press on, 
um, that they feel like they're so they can. The, it's it's a it's amazing to watch how the it's like a personality shift. It's like what they were terrified of when, you know, what came across as like, oh, they're so not into this, but they were just terrified. And now that they have a tool to engage with and they seem so like, they're such a strong unit and they're such a team. It, it's really fantastic. So I think, I don't think I've ever been in a labor where I felt unwanted or like disrespected. That's for sure. That's great to hear. Let's talk about postpartum. I'm so interested mm -hmm. in this. How soon after birth do you provide acupuncture for someone? And why would someone want treatments postpartum? So when we're lucky enough to actually be at births, we will often do treatment immediately after. Um, you know, uh, the fatigue, the adrenaline shakes, uh, all of that. Uh, you know, we can help with that in, in the moment we're definitely more than happy to to continue treatment it doesn't end the second baby's out um and but more typically what happens is usually we say at the four to five day range we can treat earlier than that um depending on what the situation is what the you know um sometimes we're just coming in to help somebody have their first poop you know because it's terrifying to have that first poop and yeah and they need a little bit of support through that um and just getting the bowels moving and 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 that but really uh typically why we don't see people until the four or five day range is because we want there to be a sufficient amount of bleeding we want to make sure that there's a thorough discharge of pregnancy products before we start trying to build somebody back up. If we're, if we use the word tonify a lot in Chinese medicine. So if we're trying to tonify or strengthen somebody's chi, um, that the body could misinterpret those signals as trying to hold on to things. Um, so we don't want uh, anybody to hold on to any pregnancy placental products. Um, we need to make sure that all of that is discharged first before we try to build people up. And honestly, one of the mo we were asking about moxa earlier in terms of breach, moxa is our maybe number one tool in uh, building someone up postpartum. We refer to it as a mother warming treatment, and it's this um, treatment that I often will just give my patients moxa to take home and explain it to them and get their partner to do it postpartum like they don't necessarily need to call us in for that piece of it but um we'll get them to do the moxa over the low abdomen from the pubic bone up to the up to the belly button um just in an uplifting kind of motion um this is without obviously the it's the the cigar moxa that i was talking about before that they doesn't touch the body um and it's just this really nice building, uh, energizing, warming sensation. And then we would repeat it again on the back from around the tailbone to about the small of the back up the midline again. And doing that can be really uh, nourishing and strengthening, uh, especially um, post-C-section uh, can be especially useful because we know um, how much weakness there's going to be through that area. You you cut through a lot of layers of not just skin and fat and uterus, but muscle uh, and fascia. So helping to bring blood and chi to the area and help to strengthen um, the healing process, it can be really useful. Interestingly enough, moxa also has indications of bringing white blood cells 
curious. So like for for uh, and in instances where there might be signs of infection, it can also be indicated for fighting the infection. Um, so yeah, all that to say that we would typically around four or five days is the the first time we would see somebody. We tend to like to see people at least twice in the first two weeks. We do house calls for that. We don't like to make people who've delivered babies leave their house more than they absolutely need to. Um, there's a lot of talk in Chinese medicine um, and in the Chinese culture of sitting the month. Um, I'm not going to press my patients on that so hardcore, but I will encourage them to be as close to their bed as possible, at least in the first few weeks, and do as little physical work as possible in that time frame. So um, in addition to doing moxa and then the tweena, the body work and the acupuncture for whatever the issues were, are inevitably going to have some, usually some issues with digestive um, pain, However that baby came, um, there's probably going to be some form of pain that they're still dealing with um, in the first couple of weeks, but also helping with the mood stuff. Um, so, it, you know, having those frank conversations with our patients about uh, where their mood is at, how they feel, if they're feeling really flat or they're feeling upset, like what is going on? If it's, if you know, it's, if it's uh, a level of up and down that seems healthy or could be leading into the potentially problematic, monitoring that and helping with that piece as well. Um, and often, um, I, I mentioned a little bit of like acupuncture earlier for like PTSD type uh, uh, neuroemotional kind of issues. Um, we will often give our patients tools like ear seeds. So they're, um, they look like tiny band-aids. <laughs> that have a little seed on them and we'll use them for acupressure and we'll put them on points in the ear specifically. There are, uh, there are protocols that we could go to for this. And so then they have a little something that they can extend treatment. They'll have treatment going on, uh, on an ongoing basis. And then obviously if that is a concern, if there is some kind of, uh, mental emotional component that we're concerned about, we would obviously want to see them, more regularly than once a week at that point. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can say I loved seeing, um, it was one of your colleagues when we lived in Toronto with my first birth and um, I saw her in the clinic and I definitely can say the acupuncture with the massage at the same time is so relaxing. Um, and then she did do the two house calls afterwards as well within those first two weeks, which were wonderful as well. So that's great. Uh, definitely the combination is uh regardless of what kind of birth i can see how that that can be quite beneficial um the other piece that i should mention is that we can be really beneficial for lactation support um and so whether that is uh, uh, a supply issue or uh block ducts or um, even leading into mastitis issues we can like if we uh can get at it quickly enough, there is the potential for avoiding other, uh, you know, antibiotic. If we can get at it quickly enough and help get things moving along, um, uh, 
avoiding all of that and then you know all the other issues that come along with antibiotics and like thrush and candida and all of that um obviously not uh a replacement for that kind of care but uh there are instances where that can be helpful and the there is a lot of dietary therapy that we would be uh recommending at that time and i would uh no affiliation but i you probably know the book the first 40 days um has wonderful recipes and guidelines that um are in line with the Chinese medicine approach to postpartum nutrition in particular. And I highly recommend it to all of my patients. Very cool. I am interested in asking you about your work around C-section scars. And Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you treat around the scar. Why might you do that? And also how early would you work in that area? Oh, I'd work in that area almost right away. As soon as the bandage is off, I'm I'm more than happy to be in there. Um, yeah, so the same way that um, acupuncture, like these, the needles actually cause these micro injuries that bring um, the, the the healing response, triggers the healing response. Um, so you get uh, the white blood cells, you get, uh, all of the, the histamines, all of that kind of the histamine reaction, getting everything happening through that area will promote more blood flow and, and drainage of all of the byproduct that we need, all the waste product that needs to leave, evacuate the area. So it will promote that reaction through there. Um, I will say that I do lean on, um, my Japanese acupuncture skills primarily for, for scar healing, which means that I don't do a lot. I personally don't do deep needling around the scar. Um, I use, similar to when I was talking about um, the ear seeds, I use intradermal needles. Uh, and so they, again, look like a tiny Band-Aid, but they are literally two millimeters in length and you can leave them on. So they don't actually even break the dermis. Um there you're only stimulating at you know in the cutaneous region and not going through and it actually brings a lot they can stay on you i've seen them stay on upwards of two weeks easily and you would do them in the four corners around the scar just to continually stimulate that kind of uh blood and she and uh response to the area and um I've seen some beautiful results. I've seen people, um, my teacher uh, having, like I interned under him for for many years and seeing his results with this kind of scar treatment was just phenomenal to me. Seeing people who had had scars that were 40 years old and still red and purple-ish and like distended. And then once he started doing the treatment, like, completely resolving and go like the the color changing back to like the regular flesh tone and no distension or pain or no numbness anymore around it being wildly successful um so that's those are the tools that i personally lean on there are a lot of schools of thought on scar healing with chinese medicine that will involve deeper needling it's just not what I lean on because I've seen this gentle approach work and I, it, and it's worked for me. So I'm happy to do it that way. But that's not to say that there, there isn't more than one way to do it successfully. Cool. Okay. I just have to tell you one 
really amazing story from one of my clients. <laughs> Anita, do you remember the person I was telling you about who had the vaginal internal hematoma after vaginal delivery? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so she was in immense pain, second baby, toddler at home, she's home full time by herself a lot of the time her husband works very long hours so she was in terrible pain early postpartum they realized she had this vaginal hematoma and essentially the advice was to let it do its thing like it just has to reabsorb there's nothing we can do about it it's not the size of something we want to drain but she was miserable just in such intense physical pain so eventually she got in to see an acupuncturist and within the first treatment she was probably 80 percent uh better from it feeling better and within the second treatment it was completely healed and it's just like magic that is it's like those are the stories that like every once in a while you doubt what you do right like you're like oh am I actually helping am I not helping and then you have an experience like that and you're like I am most definitely helping like there is no way to just you know and you often will see that with like things like this like uh bubble varicosities or hemorrhoids where you know you ask a patient to touch the area during treatment like before treatment and then you do the needling then you get them to check it again afterwards they and they're checking themselves and they're like wait a second like they know that that's the same pressure and they see the result and they're like what just happened (laughs) and you're like yes (laughs) that's so cool i love hearing about these kinds of things so anna can you share how our listeners um can find out more about you and about toronto acubirthing um Sure. Our website is torontoacubirthing.ca. We're pretty easy to find. Um, We're on all the social media. We're probably, um, we haven't been so active on it lately, I won't lie. Um, But we're probably most active on our Instagram account, which is Toronto Acubirthing. Um, You can find me under Anna R. Dix on uh, Instagram as well. We like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those. Um, uh, and yeah, all, all of the pertinent information would be there. Um, yeah, we're more than happy to field people's questions or direct them to other practitioners. If they're not here, we definitely are more than happy to refer out um, if we cannot uh, work with uh, the person for whatever reason, whether it's scheduling or location or whatnot, um, we're more than happy. We we've got a strong network of referrals that we're happy to uh, let people in on. Thanks, Anna. That was incredible information. Oh, thanks so much for having yeah, me. I, I really enjoyed doing this. <laughs> On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we have Dr. Brooke Kalanick, a naturopathic and functional medicine doctor. Dr. Brooke is a genius of women's health and hormones. On this show, we speak with her about a range of hormonal and non-hormonal birth control options, including the birth control pill, the mini pill, IUDs, and more permanent methods, such as having one's tubes tied or removed, and further, what we need to know about how these options might impact our hormonal function and how we can support our bodies with those factors at play.
We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 